You're listening to Moving On With Pain, the podcast. My name is Dr. Morden Hoy, and I'm your host. This podcast is presented by the Danish Society for Pain and Physical Therapy, a not-for-profit organization that is focusing on providing access to high-quality pain-related content for our members and everyone else with a clinical interest in pain and science. So my name is Morton. I am here at the IASP World Conference on Pain in Toronto and uh, sitting next to me is uh, Professor Tim Sullivan. You are Canadian. I am Canadian, And yes. you also work in Canada now, but you were in, in the UK for a while. Yes, which is how I became affiliated with, uh, you know, the Café Scientifique and all these yeah. uh, organizations, kind of doing them in London and Amsterdam we did. so. Uh, I believe you're the only one beating me in appearances. So. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Credit where credit is due. So I, I've invited you to this podcast because uh, I'm curious about brain research mm-hmm. and you are the person to go to in this field, obviously. Maybe uh, not the person, but I'm, I'm defini- a person. Definitely one of them. <laughs> Uh, you're also a section editor, so if one if one wants to send in a research article to yeah. the top journal, Pain. Pain, yeah, and uh, Pain Reports uh, also, though, like both the open neuroimaging. Uh, so if anybody wants to do that, they will they would go through you, so to speak. So no, they send it. Dave Semenovich actually is the and Bob Coghill are the section editors, and then there's a small team of associate editors that. Yeah. Uh, but I re- I'll read a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's just jump into it because okay. I'm I'm a bit critical, you could say, about brain scanning. Yeah. Uh, I think for me the the problem is that we are lacking a good explanation, so a good theory. Yeah. So you you have this amazing technology and you get all of these wonderful pictures. Yeah. Well, you get the data and then you create the pictures from yeah. the data. But how do you interpret it? Right. And I I share some of that frustration because. Even though I, I feel, you know, obviously we want to know what's going on in the brain. That's an important endeavor. But I think early on in the process, there was maybe kind of a blind faith in, the, you know, that, okay, uh, if we can see what is going on in the brain while task A or B is going on, then we'll know the neural mechanisms. But the problem is that all that all the data is correlational. So you don't, and in terms of mechanism, I... I kind of have a higher expectation in the yeah. sense that just just seeing something light up doesn't tell you how the circuit is working. You know, like if you if you were trying to analyze a car and you knew nothing about cars, you might say that okay, this this uh, piston is this thing is moving. Mm. Okay, but if you don't have an overarching idea of how the car works, yeah. Knowing that this so just seeing the piston move doesn't doesn't tell you doesn't even tell you it's a car, does it? Right. You need a framework to build around that to understand how you know like combustion and how all of these things. And I think very often, you know, early on, particularly in the in the endeavor, we felt like it was enough to see that brain piece light up, and we are not applying the same level of theory that we would in other domains. I think because of the so if, if we go back to the earlier days, still modern technology using fMRIs for a while, having sort of conquered the technique, yeah. would it be fair to say that the majority of people would be looking at it and then interpret it from a pain neuromatrix type? 
concepts? Well, because, uh, and this is the interpretational difficulty. When you try to interpret these findings, you, in some sense, if you haven't really done a good job of designing your experiment in a theoretical way and with some kind of temporal quality so you can infer causality, the only way you can interpret it is you look at the brain region and you say, okay, this region, let's say the anterior cingulate, also lights up in this other kind of task. Yeah. And therefore, uh, that other, that must be the same process that's going on here. Yeah. And which would be true, like that would work out if each region only did one thing. Exactly. But they don't, and no. that, that's the problem. So it's, it's very much like saying, okay, this person is using electricity in their house, therefore they must be using their washing machine. Yeah. Well, no, there's, there's <laughs> hundreds of reasons why somebody might be using electricity exactly. in their house. So you, it really doesn't and tell it, you. So anything. this reductionistic approach was probably the only thing before we could scan the brain. Yeah. Then you would have people with, you know, stroke, and you would acknowledge that they had certain fallouts. Right. And you'd say this region is doing that to them. Yeah. So like Broca's area and that's sort of older approach. Right. And then the neuromatrix would be, or the matrix theory, would then suggest that not just a single area, but a range of areas right. would tend to have this quality that yeah. could lead to the experience of pain. And there's kind of an inferred, um, there's kind of a, inherent in that is kind of a pattern theory. So you know what, in, in a way the, the imaging led us, I think in the right direction in the sense that we no longer, we kind of stopped looking for a pain center per se. And we said, okay, when we image the brain when someone is in pain, we see this widespread pattern of activation. And that corresponds with kind of how I think about uh, how the brain does pain because, you know, a pain experience is complex. You are thinking about its meaning, but you're also processing the sensory qualities of any incoming stimulation. And there's all these things that need to be integrated across. I think where the, we sort of went wrong was we sort of presumed that that pattern was very specific to pain yeah you know and that that has not turned out to be true because for example we scan people who are unable to feel pain congenitally insensitive to pain and they show like if you give them a salient sensory stimulus that isn't painful well it is it can't be painful for them mm. that, but that it would be nociceptive you still it would be nociceptive for somebody else yeah. yes and when you do that you still see that pain matrix activation okay so there are people in the field like Tor Wager and Lauren Atlas and so on who are working on more specific signatures that can kind of discriminate between different tasks. But in a way, like for my mind, those those are really important innovations, but they don't they still don't get us to what each particular part is doing, you know, and again, going back to my car analogy, you still don't know what the steering wheel is doing, you still mm -hmm. don't know what the pistons are doing, you still don't know what the gas tank is for, you know, you have you have to have some testable theory, yeah. and that's where I feel like we've not done and our I, best. I, I, you know, I think Tor would say something like it works on an average, yeah. but it doesn't work on a person. Right. So you have this idea of if you look at enough people and you average it out, you sort of get a truer response. That's right. all basics of statistics, well, right? It's a, it's a common, that's a common mistake we make when we do individual differences research. We say, you know, across this whole group of people, um, you know, uh, quality X is associated with outcome Y. Yeah. And, you know, that works at the group level. 
Like if you have 100 or 200 people, then you can make a broad conclusion. But then people presume that you should be able to apply that at the individual subject level, and yeah. we're, we're just not there yet. That leads to the question, what if, so for the research purposes and as a step towards understanding the brain better, yeah. I see, where does it tell us or does it tell us anything? Does it lead to anywhere in terms of consciousness? Well, uh, you know, obviously, like, consciousness is really the tricky piece of this, right? Because we, you know, in terms of sort of having an overarching theory about what we're doing, uh, you know, you can't get much there, there, you you'd be hard pressed to find a more sort of damning uh, blow to the theory that we don't even understand consciousness you know um, which we don't and you know we there's a very interesting debates in the literature about what the requisite biological components for pain are and we ask things like does a fish feel pain because a fish may have many of those same brain regions or functions or you know nerve types or you know um, but then we say well but if do we believe that pain requires consciousness and if we do do we believe that a fish has sufficient consciousness and then mm -hmm. you're left with this question of well what's what is sufficient consciousness yeah. you know and that but I would I would also say though despite that flaw I think it's important to do it you know in a way where it's a hopeful endeavor you know yeah. because we're we're trying to figure out, like, we know it's important to study the brain. We know the, you know, we know we've increasingly become aware of the role that the brain plays in pain and, you know, relative to nociceptors, for example. But, so it's important that we do it. And it's similarly important that we study consciousness, but we're, in my mind, very, very far from where we need to be to make and, and whilst your your sort of technical competences would be in the brain research region, you you are familiar with the philosophy of mind and, and that yeah. sort of thing. So, what what is your take on it? Where 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 does the brain stop and where does the consciousness begin? If you could, if you could dichotomize it that way, yeah, you know, I I don't think you can dichotomize it that way, <laughs> but I I think one thing that we you know I I think in terms of emergent properties. And, you know, this is a bit of a dodge, but, you know, to think that pain is an, you know, we've tried to... So emergent properties is when you have a molecule um, and you have several molecules, it turns into a drop of water. So right, the same like, molecule by... Yeah, exactly. So, so something that arises from the sum of parts. And, yeah. you know, we have tended to think in a very modular way, like we should be able to, you know, this, this region or set of regions uh, is responsible for pain and does this mm -hmm. and you know much more I think we which, need to which be, I think you're saying is wrong I, I think that it is less, it's a start well we would like to know what each region does but you know again like a, a car you you cannot put a steering wheel and a set of tires and a gas tank in your backyard and expect to go forward mm -hmm. right you that somehow that whole unit has to be together and you know forward motion is an emergent property of all of those things together and running in a system and that's what i think we need to understand better how that system works as a whole and i i think the brain imaging you know it got us it helped us get understand the distribution mm -hmm. in the brain but i don't think yet we're there where we can 
begin to understand how that emergent property is created from cooperation between uh, different regions. And, you know, that's where I like different literatures are important. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, people with strokes. So lesion patients can often tell us about the causality of particular regions. And, you know, I think animal work is important there too, so that we can, you know, we can inform these brain blobs we observe with imaging with stuff that gives us better causal inferences. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think vice versa. I think imaging can add to those because unlike them, we can actually observe what is happening while uh, something is going on in vivo, you know, and I think that's important. But uh, so I guess I wouldn't throw the baby away with the bathwater just because the imaging doesn't maybe isn't as informative as we would write in our discussion sections. If, <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it can't contribute something. I just think, you know, we have a lot of technological work to do and a lot of analytical work. And I think the piece that often is forgotten is experimental design. You know, I think we need to think more about what kind of experimental design would make this imaging experiment more informative. Yeah. Are you thinking in, in even in single case experimental designs or are you thinking more generally speaking about the experiment, how you design your experiment to yeah, to rule I, out certain things. I think I think mostly the latter. I mean, I think the former is also, uh, you know, worth considering. But I I think yes, in terms of, and I think longitudinal work is one of the thing. You know, like we are often missing causality, and you know, we don't yet have the temporal resolution with imaging that we can sort of catch neurons speaking to each other and you know direct transmission. Because for you know, for people who aren't familiar with imaging. We have a temporal, the, a temporal sort of specificity of about two seconds. So we can't really look at anything, maybe one second, you know, if we tweak our protocols. But, you know, we can't look at anything that's at a finer temporal resolution than one or so two So what seconds. that means is that the only, the things you can actually create or, or uh, attract, attract data from yeah. are things that is happening within a second. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to, to look at, so where we, so the, the old way to do it would be uh, bold, for instance, yeah. blood oxygen levels. Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, ASL, so arterial uh, spin, spin labeling, labeling where yeah. you were tagging some blood uh, molecules. Yeah. As they were go sorry, um, blood, what do you call them? Blood cells as they were going yeah, up yeah. the carotid artery. Mm -hmm. And you could tag where they were in the brain. But where, where are we going? So you, you look, you're saying, individual neurons is is it solution we're looking for is it a new protocol is it a so I, I think it's two things I think you know first of all experimental design but also we need technical development on the methodology because you know the advantage of say fMRI over something like EEG which has very fast temporal resolution we have better spatial resolution so EEG gets you very broadly, like in a particular and area, and putting your hands to your head. Yeah, uh, because EEG <laughs> is recording electricity from the cortex, right, uh, on top of the so non-invasively recording activity right. on the cortex. Right, and that that you know the temporal resolution is really good. We can see fast things happening, but we can't get very tight spatially. And so you know those two method we those two methodologies need to get kind of closer to each other. And you know Meg uh, is one thing that you know does a little better. And what is Meg? 
Meg is, uh, I wish it's magno, I'm going to mess this up, magnoencephalogram or something. So okay. it's, it's yeah, like so an it's EG. That, it goes over your head. It works at a faster resolution, but it gets better spatial uh, resolution yeah. as well. So, and, you know, we'll we'll work out our imaging protocols so that we can get faster resolution. So if I get it right, that protocol would, or that method would help you. They would both get the action potentials yeah. and, uh, and the blood changing in the brain that's kind of the the hope is that you can sort of get the more the broader like global things and the sort of faster you know action and and so learning from from Neuroscience, basically, you say it, it took us about 100 years from realizing how important the neurons were to realizing how important the glia cells were. Right. Is are you are you doing the same mistake here, or or you know, would it be feasible? Well, Is it could, possible you, to measure calcium waves, for instance? You you could call it the same mistake, or you could say that's you know the the arc of science is long and slow. You know that that it takes a long time to, for us to develop these things, and I think you know there there can be. When we see some of these findings in neuroimaging that challenge the types of interpretations we make, we there's a tendency to say, oh, we better chuck that methodology because it sucks. It's not telling us what we need to know. But, you know, if you think in the longer term that, okay, if we continue to develop that technology, so, you know, in the case of fMRI, we can get faster resolution, and we begin to develop our, you know, experimental protocols so that we can make stronger more causal inferences Mm -hmm. and you know if we then incorporate things like TMS uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation where we can actually change what a particular brain region is doing then we'll be able to make some more causal and stronger inferences and we're I guess you know we 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 think now that this technology has been used for 20 or 30 years that if it hasn't given us the answer yet we need to ditch it and uh, you know I the reason I still do neuroimaging experiments is because that you know we're on a long arc and you know I, I maybe we'll find in the end that fMRI dot can't get us where we need to go but you know then that will lead us to development of better tools so you know it's we, you have to just take a bit of a long view with this I think. yeah and and I guess for many people understanding that the trick about the temporal solution so mm-hmm. if you want to do something to people and you know an a b designer would say you do something they rest for instance and yeah. then you you do you induce uh, pain experimental pain and then you want to see what happens afterwards or you give them verbal suggestions or something right. so it's really recording over time that could be the next big trick is that yeah. what you're saying yeah I would say so and you know just being more aware that I think as we get a, a little dissatisfied and I was, you know, from my own perspective, like, you know, when I just got to England, we ran a lot of resting state experiments. Yeah. And so the resting state theory. Resting state is just. State stats. Yeah. Sorry. Resting state is, you know, you image somebody while they're doing nothing in order to see, you know, putatively what the brain is doing while, you know, while you're nothing is engaged. So it's kind of like the baseline state of the brain. And so then we we image somebody while they're just sitting there, and then uh, we correlate that with various things. And in some ways, that is very exciting because you say, I could do this with anyone. You know, I don't need to have this whole protocol. I can just stick hundreds of people in, quick, get a resting state scan, and we'll have some idea about the baseline qualities that may lead to something. But I found personally, 
once we started writing up these papers and I was writing the discussion sections, I didn't know what to say. You know, I saw, you know, let's say the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex highly connected to each other. And then I would say, okay, this correlated with this task. But then uh, uh, in terms of explaining why? why and what it was doing, you're just hand-waving. You're making yeah. stuff up out of kind of hopefully informed, you know, theory, yeah. but, but it's still and a guess. found it before me, so there seems to be some right. consistency in the findings, but right. what they really mean was still a trick. Yeah, and so for me, that dissatisfaction of, okay, I, I'm frustrated trying to write this up uh, because I can't make the kinds of inferences that yeah. to me would be more groundbreaking. Um, no, that has pushed me to do it differently. Fabulous. I think this is so interesting. Uh, but we do need to wind up because I need, you need to go to a session. Yeah, yeah. So, um, would you, maybe we could end off. Uh, could you give us an example of a study that you think really highlights where we were wrong? And then a study that suggests maybe this could be the path forward? Right. So, I, I think. Rather than pick on one person's study for where we go wrong, I, I think you know you could look at almost any imaging study that was done early on, where we you know for example with pain we we give people a pain stimulus and we say, okay this you know this region these regions lit up and you know uh, you they're, they're ubiquitous yeah. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And I would say, I would point more at the bulk of all those studies doing the same thing and getting not a lot further, you know. And I would say, like, you know, I've been critical earlier about this neurologic pain signature of Torweger and Lauren Atlas and Matthew Waugh and so on, um, because I don't, I don't think it gets us as far as we want to go in terms of individual measurement. But I think that their approach, taking a big... A huge data set, and not being satisfied with you know the the blobology and saying how do we make this more specific? And then I I felt you know they were very rigorous methodologically to tease one from the other. And you know is is does that get us to the end of the line? No, it doesn't. But you know I I'm excited when I see the approach because they're really trying to take it. And I think they use deep learning on the machine learning yeah. as well, don't they? Yeah, so it's it's a machine learning protocol where you basically say, you know, you train your data set to uh, specify between, say, pain and, for example, social isolation, or between pain and warm stimulation. And so, you know, you have a big sample, you take a method methodical approach to teasing those things apart in the way they need to be teased apart. And then you apply, you know, a very, novel, interesting, analytical method, which is machine learning to yeah. that. So I think, you know, it, it, does it get us to the where we need to be? No. But like that is the type of stuff that I want to see more of. And again, the, the, end, the end goal here for some people would be to put people in a scanner, not ask them, but look at their brains and find out if they're in pain. Yeah. And, you know, Tor would say that's not happening. And it sounds like you're saying the same. I would say that anybody who thinks that somehow the brain is going to yield an objective measure, I think is barking up the wrong tree. Because I think for one thing, <clears throat> it's good to have object, quote unquote, objective measures to corroborate subjective report. But I think if we think that somehow that is a better measure or it will ever be a better measure than somebody just telling us what they're feeling, I think they're, you know, barking up the wrong tree. So pain yeah. is inherently subjective. 
That's a beautiful way to end this talk. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Martin, always. So thank ha you. Have a good Nobody day. can see us shaking hands on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let them know afterwards. <laughs>